message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. question for you guys. Uh, any golf fans in the room? Just, just be proud. Just like, I, I'm, you watch golf like on the weekend, seven of you, okay. Uh, <laughs> any, did anyone know what happened in golf last Sunday? Raise your hand. Okay, a few, a few more of you, interestingly enough. Um, for those who haven't looked at the news or wasn't on social media, uh, Tiger Woods ended up winning the Masters, uh, which was incredibly exciting to watch. And, and for those of you who kind of have un- no clue, like, why is that a big deal? Doesn't he always win? Uh, he used to. Uh, in June 2008 was the last time that he won uh, a major championship in golf. And so 11 years ago, uh, the following year, uh, Tiger Woods' life got wrecked. Uh, quite literally, he was drunk, ran his SUV, uh, and crashed it. Uh, shortly thereafter, found out about um, multiple extramarital affairs. Uh, his personal life, his physical body, his golfing career were in shambles um, and didn't recover. He just continued to seemingly get worse. His golf game did not come back ended up having knee surgery, four different back surgeries, which ended up leading into some addiction to some pain medication, checked himself in to get help. I mean, Tiger Woods, who was, and and even when he was out of the game for a decade, was still viewed as one of the greatest golfers that he's ever seen. And at the same time, there was just this sense about him of what a tragedy what a tragedy his life was, the decisions that he had made, the potential that he had. So on Sunday, as people began to watch and started to think, could he come back? Could he come back? And I know this is a reflection of his sport rather than maybe his life, but I just wanted to show a video um, uh, of some interviews over the years that had been given about Tiger. And this is Tiger watching them after he won the Masters on Sunday. I just want to show you this. that good? He's like, the little smirk, he's just like. <laughs> but only seven you care about golf. <laughs> but we love that. We love that story because inside it does something in us. And, and I believe 
that whether it's Tiger Woods, um, whether it's someone else in sports, a friend of yours, when we see redemption happen, it's because there's something inside of us that has been hardwired for resurrection. There's something inside of the depth and core of who we are that believe that this should not end in death, in retirement, in destruction, in all of these things. There's got to be something more. And so when we see little glimpse of this in human beings, it kind of sparks. You kind of watch people start talking about it and things like that because I think there's actually a bigger story than Tiger Woods. There's a bigger story than even just what we feel and experience. And it's the story of why we're all at church today. It's the story of the resurrection. And so if you guys have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read about the greatest comeback the world has ever seen. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, says this. After the Sabbath at dawn, for on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. What a bummer if you're the other Mary, right? Like, you don't even have a last name. <laughs> That's me. Like, is it? I don't know. Um, verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him and that they shook and became like a dead man. Even the angel dressed up for Easter, you know? He's just just looking great. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried from the tomb and after yet filled with, er, and, uh, and afraid, yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Well, it's such a profound story that this morning I would like to propose to you that this is more than just a story. There's three things, if you guys are taking notes, that we can, uh, we're going to be looking at this morning for the next few minutes. Number one, the resurrection gives us three things. The first thing is a faith that is sure. And by sure, I mean that it's something that is concrete, it's reasonable, it's rational, it's something that we can actually uh, confidently put our trust in. Uh, Number two, the resurrection gives us a hope that is alive. It's not a hope that's questionable, a hope that's wishful thinking. It's a hope that is real and living. And thirdly, the resurrection gives us a love that has conquered all. Let's dive into our first point this morning, a faith that is sure, which is to answer the question, did Jesus raise from the dead? Uh, if you were here last week, we, we spent a few moments talking about the cross. Do we know for a fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? And we established that um, history and, and reasonability is on the side that Jesus died on the cross. Well, this is kind of part two. If you didn't hear that, you're welcome to go back and listen to that on the podcast. But today we're going to be answering the question, not only did Jesus die on the cross, which is, which is fairly easy to prove, 
But did he raise again bodily? Did his body raise from the dead? This is something that's a little bit more intriguing because it's not something we see all the time. But what's interesting is that the resurrection of Jesus over the past 50 years has made a turn in as far as the world of academia um, and, and as far as the world of scholars. So in the 70s, it was pretty much unanimously believed across the board, even amongst some Christian scholars, that if Jesus resurrected, it wasn't his body, it was his presence of some sort. People had real experiences, but it wasn't actually him. But what's interesting is in the world of scholars, and by scholars, I'm talking about unbelieving, unchristian scholars now, roughly two-thirds believe that history points to there being an actual physical resurrection of Jesus. Um, I've spent years studying this, but the past week or two, I've concentrated hours of my time looking at research and, and studying brilliant minds and the things that they've discovered. And so I wanted to bring before you just a few facts of why this turn has happened, why there has been this shift in the academic world and scholarly world that pretty much, almost across the board, people are saying Jesus rose from the dead. So here, here are a few. It begins with the first fact, which is this, um, is that uh, after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It begins there. Not only did Jesus die, but he was buried, and he was buried in a specific place uh, by this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea is known not just only in the Bible, but in other historical documents because he was a part of what the Jewish people called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a uh, kind of a civil group uh, that kind of helped keep laws. They were people of money and power and pretty much ran the ancient world as far as, as far as that where Jesus was existing. And one of them, named Joseph, happened to become a follower of Jesus and approached Pilate, which was the Roman governor at that time, and asked if he could bury Jesus in his personal tomb that was yet to be occupied in the city of Jerusalem, which lets us know a few things about Joseph of Arimathea. Number one, he was not some made-up figure. We have evidence and proof that he was real. Number two, he is someone of incredible means because he had the ability to purchase his own tomb in the city. And so if this was a fictitious story, someone was just making up that Jesus was buried and rose again, they would not choose this person. This would be the last person they would choose. Because if this happened to just be a story they made up, they can just immediately go to this person and knew who he was, where he was, the status he had, and they could ask him and he could say, no, it's not true. But the fact that this person's name was mentioned is evidence enough that we know exactly where Jesus was buried. Besides that, the scriptures that are used in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 15, um, Mark's gospel, all point to this ancient document, this creed, that was circulated around the first or second uh, year after Jesus' death. And the reason why that's important is most historical documents are written uh, normally decades after an event happened. But they're documents that history, like that we believe. So when we study about Alexander the Great, when we study about the Caesars, and we, when we study about these things, these documents are written decades after the fact that has happened um, with significantly less manuscripts. This was written down within a year or two. We, we know this to be true for these eyewitnesses. That's our first point, is that we know Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Fact number two, on the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. 
Uh, again, we know this because the ancient documents point to this, but maybe you're like, well, I don't believe the ancient documents. I don't uh, believe the scripture. Well, then we can just look at kind of the literary functions that are happening in this text. The first one being is that normally mythological writings, uh, legendary writings, which there were many in Greco-Roman time, are told from the perspective of a first person of an omniscient uh, point of view, a narrator who can see everything that's going on. That is not how any of the Gospels write about it. There's no omniscient person who sees all of these hidden details that you could say, how would anyone know that? All they record are eyewitnesses' accounts. There's a simplicity to it that leans to a fact rather than fiction. In, in the same way, if I were to tell you about a car accident I was in, I would tell you what I saw, what I felt, what I experienced. I couldn't tell you what the other driver was doing. I couldn't tell you what they were thinking, what was on their radio. I only would have a very limited amount of facts I could describe, and all of the gospel writers only portray limited amount of facts that only they could have seen, which in a literary sense described, these are eyewitnesses' accounts. These are not mythological legends that are being written for the purpose of kind of promoting a certain belief system. Secondly, uh, the people who are giving an account of this, the very first people who are witnessing the resurrection, we talked about last week, were women. And nowadays, that wouldn't be uncommon, but in ancient culture, women did not have any authority to testify in court because their testimony was viewed as unworthy and untrustable. So for the, so let's just say the early followers of Jesus were, were making up a story to further along this ministry of Jesus. Uh, they would not have chosen Joseph of Arimathea to be the person where he was buried. Uh, they would have created more details, but probably most importantly, they would not have put women as the first people who saw him. Immediately, that discredits that sort of story, other than the fact that that's just actually what happened. It just leans to this fact that they're not making anything up. They're not making themselves look good or the story look good. Um, and, and secondly, is that the Jewish allegation that the disciples had stolen the body is addressed in Matthew 28, meaning there's already a circulating story around that time of Jesus' body is not there. So let me just say this. No one believes that Jesus' body was missing, um, whether you're a Christian or not. We know that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, and there was an empty tomb that Sunday, which kind of brings us to our third fact. How do we know that Jesus actually resurrected? Fact number three, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. So in 1 Corinthians 15, in the Gospels, in Acts, again and again, these Gospel writers give lists of people who were eyewitness accounts to Jesus being risen from the dead. Now, here's what's funny about that. This was written within their lifetime. So these people are still alive. So if they would have said, hey, you know who saw Jesus raised from the dead? Tom. And Tom's dead? Well, then they'd be like, well, how do we prove that? But the fact that the, that the scripture writers are actually writing down, here's the people that saw them. Here's who you can go talk to. This is how you can know. Go ask them yourselves. Is, is signifying a certain level of confidence that they have. Like check with some of them, not just one or two or even a dozen, hundreds and hundreds. Ask them all. They all saw the same things. Um, next thing that we can see, it has all the earmarks of a, of a historical event. Um, 
Like, for instance, we know that Jesus' brothers were not followers of him. Uh, they didn't believe he was the son of God, just like you probably wouldn't believe your brother was the son of God, right? Like, bro, sorry. No way. Yet, after the resurrection, his brothers now become devout followers and are even martyred because they believed their brother was the son of God. I love this. The, the leading German critic on the resurrection is this guy named Evan Gert de Min. This is the leading critic of the resurrection. Actually writes this. It's a quote. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Thank you, Evan. You're doing a terrible job being the critic of the resurrection, but we appreciate it. Uh, fact number four, this is, our, this is kind of our last fact for the day. The original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Uh, number one, their leader's dead. So if this movement was trying to progress, their leader's gone. So what would, what would compel them to want to continue this movement if he actually had not raised from the dead. Secondly, Jewish people, no Jewish people believed that current resurrection was possible. Some of them, the Pharisees, some of them believed in a future resurrection when God would return and everyone would be resurrected, but no one in their mind had that a Messiah would die the way Jesus did and no one believed that he, would re he was resurrected. So, for his followers, just to perpetuate this as some sort of made-up story, would not have happened unless something actually happened. And probably the greatest evidence for me of why I know this, why this took place, is simply by looking at the lives of the people who witnessed Jesus raised from the dead. Let me just give you a few examples. One is, one is Peter. Peter the night that Jesus is crucified is in the temple courts denying that he even follows Jesus to a little girl and other men and is just so, such a coward and so afraid he doesn't have anything to do with them. Fifty days later, he's in the same temple courts, gives a sermon about Jesus' death and resurrection, and thousands come to faith in him. What happened in 50 days? I mean, I, I believe people can change, but not like that. And there's only two things that we know that happened to Peter. One, he experienced, he saw the resurrected Christ. And number two, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead fell upon him. He changed. I mean, was a different person. Paul, who used to be under the name of Saul, had a profession of gathering Christians and killing them because he was so offended with the thought that the Messiah would die on the cross and raise from the dead. So he made it his life goal to eradicate Christianity. Well, it says that Paul, on, a, on his horse, on his way to go kill some more Christians, sees the resurrected Christ on his horse, falls off his high horse, literally, becomes blind, and this guy, in a moment, changes. He becomes the most prolific Christian missionary the world has ever seen. How does this happen? And then you just look at all of the followers of Jesus who ended up, every single one of them, except for maybe one or two, died horrific, torturous deaths defending this fact. And so maybe, maybe there's one crazy guy who's like, I'm going to the grave with this. But not two, not 12, not hundreds, not thousands. 
Within 300 years, half of the Roman Empire had become followers of this resurrected Christ. And we're losing, I mean, guys, this wasn't like they had great like mega churches with comfy chairs and awesome kids ministries. If you were, if you were like a Christian, your life was in danger. What would be so compelling that you would put your life and the life of your family in danger unless this actually happened? Our faith is sure. We are not here because this feels good. We are here because this happened. And we believe this. History is on the side. Archaeology is on the side. Reasonability is on the side. And Jesus rose from the dead. Did, and if you believe he didn't, it takes way more faith than I have. We have a sure faith because of what we know happens in the scriptures. So what's amazing about that is not only cool that happened as a history event, but if Jesus was true... If Jesus spoke the truth about him raising from the dead, then everything else he said must be true as well. Just think about that. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, isn't that a lot easier to say than I'm going to raise from the dead? So we can find comfort in that. When Jesus says, um, have peace when you have trials of many kind because I have overcome the world. We can believe that because you rose from the dead. So because Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he has said requires us to look at seriously. Timothy Keller says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This leads us to our second point this morning, morning, which is that we have a hope that is living, a a hope that is alive. And but what I mean by hope that is living, it's 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 beyond wishful thinking or a dream. It's a kind of hope that electrifies every single thing that you do that can't stop you. Peter, the same guy that we just talked about, wrote this in a letter to one of his churches. And this is in First Peter chapter one verse three. Said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, I'm going to stop right there. Why is he writing this? Because he's writing this to a church that is literally being killed off. What we heard about in Sri Lanka was happening every single day in the New Testament. And you can imagine the church being like, man, this is really intense, Peter. And he writes them. You know what he tells them? He says, you have a living hope. You have a living hope because of the resurrection of the dead. What you're experiencing, the trials, the things that you're going through may be extremely tough, but there's something beyond it. And it is as sure as Jesus' resurrection itself. It's kept for you. It's undefiled. And it's ready for you. And he's encouraging them, not, not with just nice words, but with the reality that has changed his life. This hope is alive. And for those of us who are here, the reality is we don't fear for our lives. Most of us, we struggle with a sense of meaning. 
We struggle with the sense of, God, does, does any of this matter? Does this matter how I'm living? Does it really matter if I live for you, Jesus? Does it really matter that you raised from the dead? And the answer of the resurrection says, because that Jesus raised from the dead, everything matters. What we do here doesn't end here. What happens here has the ability to carry on in a resurrecting type sense into, uh, into all of eternity. I love N.T. Wright. He's one of my favorite scholars has this quote talking about what the resurrection means for how we live today, the kind of hope that we get to have in his book, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. He says this, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not toiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into a fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for building site. You are, strange though it may seem, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support, for one's fellow human being, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. We have a living hope. There's nothing that we do when we're doing it in love, inspired by the goodness and beauty of God that could ever truly be taken away from us because of the promise of the resurrection, because of the model that Jesus has shown us, which leads us to our third point, which asks this question, why? Why would Jesus go through all of that the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, if, if God was fully sufficient in and of himself, what would compel him to do such a dramatic, loving, sacrificial move in, in, in this way? And the answer, simply put, is, is love. And it's not one that I've made up. It's one that is just filled the scriptures of reminding us this is why. It's one thing to walk away and be like, Jesus rose from the dead, that's cool. It's another thing to walk away and understand why he did it. And that is found in understanding that he's providing us with the kind of love that is more sacrificial than we could ever imagine, but more victorious than we could ever dream. A kind of love that the deepest part of our hearts has been longing for, and we try and find it in another person, or in a position, or a career, or a status, or popularity. We're longing for that kind of love, right? I love what Tim Keller talks about. Our greatest fear is to be fully known and not fully loved. But the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection, resurrection paired together tells us that you have been fully known and fully loved. A kind of love that nothing can stop, nothing can conquer. A matter of fact, it has conquered all. And Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans. He says, who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sh- a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can stop this kind of love. Nothing. Would you guys bow your heads with me? I'm gonna invite Brandon to come up and, and play. And as you're, as you're bowing your heads, I just wanna read you this, this quote. Chuck Sundahl wrote, and it's just one of my favorites of what the resurrection means. This is what he says. Listen to these words. The devil, darkness, and death may swagger and boast The pangs of life will sting for a while longer, but don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He is risen. 